with you? That's fine. Cool, cool. Um, welcome to Practice Makes Podcast. This is a self-improvement podcast or an educational podcast that um, is a fan of intellectual uh, enlightenment or something. <laughs> That's correct, Tyler. <laughs> Thank you. I'm Jordy Wofford, your co-host, and I would... Uh, second, the point that this is a self-improvement podcast, whether that be through uh, education, improving uh, one's habits, mm. and all around uh, feeling better about ourselves. So mm. the, mm -hmm. there are many roads that lead to the path of self-improvement. Yes, you're and right. Thank, yeah. Thank you all for joining us this week. It's not and always about mental health. It's not always about losing weight. You know, nope. there there are other ways to improve yourself and your life and the way that you spend your time here on Earth. <laughs> Actually, I think what I just what we just said about how um, there's multiple ways to self improvement that reminds me of the expression "all roads lead to Rome," mm -hmm. which is kind of funny because that was had a little bit to do with the subject that I wanted to talk about today. Oh, cool. Can I tell mm. you something that happened recently? Yeah. What, what is it? Uh, so I'm on an online dating site. Oh, and, which one? Uh, I'm not going to tell I... you. Cause then <laughs> so people can find your profile. Yeah. Um, but someone told me, they're like, we should probably talk about what's mandatory in a relationship. And I was like, whoa, that sounds intense AF. And they're like, but you seem so cool. So let's talk. And then, um, so first of all, I'm like, you don't even know me. How could I seem cool? You're a murderer. Of course. Cause you know, there are a lot of murderers out there according to the murder podcasts that I listen to. They're all men and they all kill women. And mm -hmm. I love to generalize. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> So can I tell you what his mandates are? <laughs> yeah, I'm interested. I've never heard the expression mandatory. What is it? What mandates for a relationship? I guess. Um, that sounds so formal. It sounds like something like a Greek philosopher would write or like the treatises of mandates <laughs> for relationship values. And I'm also uh, like a pretty non-committal type person and Although I plan things and I'm very organized, I also um, don't like to be told what to do. Not that those things have anything to do with one another, but I can't. It's really hard for me to be told what to do. So when someone says the, says the word mandatory, it automatically just makes me clinch up my vagina. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, even me just having the word mandatory in relationship, that just sounds uh, very inflexible and very categorical okay but so they're not that bad so i'll tell you uh one lifelong marriage i'm never going to divorce two kids minimum of three but more is okay too and a loving family i want to raise them to be active in their community cub scouts boy scouts etc i'm huge on education and want them to attend college i want to be very involved in their lives all sweet things Except that I don't really know how I feel about the children idea. Three, go on adventures. I want to sail the world, visiting countries along the way. Longest camping trip is five to six 
nights. Can you handle that in a tent with a name shift shower? I don't know what that means. Can you handle multi-night backpacking, rock climbing? At the age of 50-ish or whenever the kids are all moved out, I want to buy a large boat and sail the world. <laughs> it's very Ooh. specific. It's very, well, it's kind of cliche, I hate to say. But... <laughs> yeah, and so, okay, I'll read you the rest. So I was thinking, like, maybe he was manic. So I asked him, like, are you in a manic episode? Because this is all very, like wonderful and specific and how could you honestly think that you could make this type of plan and have it go through like all of the above because there's still three more um four i like to buy nice things but i also don't like to waste money on frivolous stuff are you okay to eat at home more often than eating out i can help cook but i'll expect you to also help cook at least half the time and i'll cook the other half which is nice. That's equality. Uh, five, I'm kind of a sexual deviant. Communicate with me to help me better at pleasing you. Ideally making you come every time at least once. Routine wow. anal once a week or more often. Routine oral. Ideally going all the way down. An occasional threesome, maybe three a year? Question mark. Six, we, wow. both, <laughs> we both share cooking, cleaning, and child raising. Seven, open and honest communication. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a person that knows what they want. I mean, <laughs> I I said, wow, it sounds like you know what you want. I'm very impressed. So. <laughs> yeah, apart from the threesomes and the anal, I was about to say that they tend to want the very like traditional stereotypical things of like lifelong marriage. That's what's so uh, weird about kids. it. Cause they're so like dualistic, I feel like, but routine anal sounds, uh, like work. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. You know, I guess I won't, I won't comment about anal. I was thinking anything, like maybe some people like it. Maybe I'd never do anal again. I was thinking, uh, but <laughs> anyway, now we've gotten off topic, though. But how are you, anyway? Anything new? Uh, I'm doing fine. You know, my girlfriend started her new job as a social worker. And I'm actually, honestly, a little jealous of her because it seems like a really neat and interesting job. Yeah. Uh, she's. This is only her third day, but uh, yesterday was her second day. And they went out on the street, and they were out looking for somebody who had gone missing. Oh. And obviously that's a serious matter, but yeah. to me it just seemed kind of like it would be kind of exciting, like yeah. doing detective work. Oh, yeah. And and you're, like, helping the world. Yeah, like she's making a difference, whereas um, I sell pot. I mean, and, some people would argue that you're making a difference. Yeah, I guess in some way. But we, we had, like, kind of a joke about how... You know, there's probably people who suffer from like mental health problems and they probably have, um, they're probably like have substance abuse problems as well. And so we have the joke that, well, I, I sell, I basically sell like pot to her patients or people that she'll <laughs> end up like having to help out. <laughs> You're working against each other. Well, I, I like, like you were saying, I like to think that we do kind of make a difference because one thing that we're supposed to do is, warn people about the health risks of, you know, uh, drug use. And we, if we tell people, if they do want to try it out, we tell people to take things that are less strong. 
Yeah, and so. people that are heavy drinkers, um, I've heard tell. You know, I ha- I know some people that have been able to quit drinking and smoking instead, which I would argue is a better way of life than because uh, it doesn't destroy your liver; it doesn't kill you quite as quickly to smoke a bunch. Yeah, it's not the best thing in the world for you, but I think it's definitely less uh, bad for you than drinking by far. Yeah, and um, this is, and I'm a, a heavy drinker actually, so I actually wish I were if I had to choose between being a smoker and being a drinker, a pot smoker. I mean, I'm, yeah. I would rather do that. Unfortunately, I think it's, so. Uh, I mean, one of my friends, he is no longer a drinker, but he's a heavy pot user now, and he kind of just stays home and doesn't do anything. So there's that. So, like, don't be a heavy pot user unless you have to be, I guess. But um, he's, you know, he's not going to have the arguments that he used to have when he was drunk. He's not going to probably spend as much money as he used to because when you're drunk, you just, like, all your inhibitions are down. I haven't been stoned in a very long time, so I don't really remember what that's like. But I have a, I just have a hunch it's not the same uh, as far as uh, being able to hold back in your impulses. Yeah, for it's definitely not the same effect, which is what kind of makes it hard for me to like transition to from like one to the other because I I just don't feel like it's quite the same. There is one like this can vary from one person to another, but basically each uh genetic or each uh strain of pot can have slightly different effects and there is one that I found that I do like because it basically it's the thing that I find uh gives the closest effect to what alcohol is like oh really yeah for me everyone's different you'll have to tell me about that off recording so that we don't promote drugs (laughs) yeah I'll I'll keep it whatever it's called don't do drugs people but um unless yeah it's I don't know. It's it's usually a question of chance, like what people end up being like addicted to. Mm. And I I find that more often than not, once you get stuck with that first substance, you're going to have a hard time transitioning over to another one. But uh, obviously the objective is not to not to do drugs or to drink. Mm-hmm. Well, we live in an imperfect world. Yeah, and that's part of what I'm worried about with some talking to someone that's like has all these fantastical ideas that are like, oh, it's gonna be perfect, and they basically love bomb you because um, I've fallen into that trap in the past where they make all these kind of promises, and he's also making it so that it seems like it's you know my uh, idea almost in a way where it's like, are you okay with me being awesome? It's like, oh yeah, I guess, and then and then he's not any of those things. Like it's me being mandated to be this person, but then he doesn't actually have to keep the promise, and then he turns it around on me, and then suddenly I'm stuck, uh, wishing that I had the person that I knew in the beginning, you know? Because my uh, so I was relating that because my drug of choice was people. Hmm. And so I think with someone like that, that has all these really crazy ideas and is very like intense, it's easy to get uh, sucked up into that and just kind of live in a fantasy. And then when it turns out to be reality, you have a hard time uh, 
you know, realizing that it, it isn't real. So you're saying like once you get sucked up with being with a person and then when they end up like changing or your situation changes, then it's like the rug is taken out from under you. Or? Yeah. They pretend to be this like wonderful person that has, you know, like in his case, he has all these very um, specific ideas of who he wants to be in the life that he wants. So it, it makes it sound like it's wrapped up in a nice little package, but in reality it's actually, you know, people have all kinds of things that come out later on. And so you can't just assume oh this is what I'm getting because that's what he put on paper and then and so in the past I've just kind of clung to the idea that they were this fantasy that oftentimes I had actually created um by idealizing this person's profile it does really seem like they're trying to project like an idealized version of themselves and they're saying like, oh, I'm going to get a ship and we're going to sail around the world and we're going to go on five day backpacking and hiking trips and have the stars will be our blanket. And yeah. it's, it's, All you, you know, have to do is agree to anal routinely. <laughs> and then you can have it all. Uh, no, I mean, yeah, I, I think it's a little bit unrealistic and I mean, obviously, we all want to project like an idealized version of ourselves, like particularly when we're starting off in a relationship. I remember a friend of mine when she she, when she was talking about when she first started dating her boyfriend, he was always saying, oh, I just love giving massages like I would give a massage like every night to the person I was in a relationship with. And then like she found out. Like after a while, like you don't actually like doing this, do you? Oh it's my like, god! No, I. It's, he I was lied. Just trying to oh, what an asshole! Wow. I love know. massages. I will not tolerate lying about in, uh, enjoying giving massages. Zero tolerance. Yeah, and I was I was honest about that specific uh, thing early in my relationship. I was like, I'm not good at giving massages. I don't like doing it. And, <laughs> but my my girlfriend will occasionally force me to give her a massage but it's just so it's just such a chore for me yeah i pay someone to do it so i don't have to do all that yeah it's like you just go get a real massage because i can't do anything other than like press my hands against oh you back. know what you could do you could get her a professional massage for christmas <gasps> although Ooh. are you guys in the red uh level red covid oh yeah that might be a problem because i got her last year i think it was last year i got her a present for a fish pedicure <laughs> oh were they like little fish yeah eat, they'll eat at your feet <laughs> and i got it we were gonna do that eat together we still have the coupon but everything shut down uh, right after that yeah so I don't know. That is a good idea to get her a massage, but I'm wondering if yeah. that would even be possible because everything's shut down here. I know that my massage therapist has continued to be open. I haven't gotten an email from her to say otherwise yet, but I think it just shifted to red recently. Yeah, it's, I don't know. It's not looking like things are going to be going back to normal anytime soon. Around I think here. It, it directly correlates with my mood. Like when I'm in a good mood, everything goes to shit covid wise i'm like come on man like right before covid started i had just done a ted talk i was like ready to change the world when it like 
self-love. Like, I'm going to spread this. I'm going to write a book. And then COVID started. And I was, like, in way too good of a mood. And the earth was like, nah. And then recently. <laughs> you got to temper that good yeah. vibe that yeah. you've got going on. And then recently I'm like, you know what? Things are good. Like, we switched to the 12-hour shifts. But I'm able to do six hours on Friday. So then I don't have to do um, a fourth 12 or a fourth shift. And so I'm like, yeah, this is working out. I'm using, like, my PTO, my holiday hours. I'm like, yeah, yeah, life is good. I got a dog. And then COVID's like, uh, we're going to close everything again. Because potentially if they close the gyms, then I don't have a reason to not work on Wednesdays anymore at the lab. So then I... Yeah, it just takes away all of your your extracurricular activities or your yeah. side projects. Yeah. Well, hmm. It did it to me, too. I was really motivated. I'd signed up to a gym and ah. like a fool, I thought if everything was going to stay open <laughs> and I was going every day, I was really motivated. And then, yeah, just just like with you, COVID went, nah, dog. Nah, nah. dog. Yeah, well, at <laughs> least on January 1st, everything will go back to normal. It'll just be like, ka-ching. Is that, what is that what is supposed to happen no, where you're at? Or? of course not. I was just, you know, thinking in terms of when you're playing, like, a video game or something and you die. You're, like, in Halo or Plants vs. Aliens or Mario and you die, but then you just re-form uh, just earlier in the game and then you the get term to start is over. Thank you. <laughs> Clearly someone doesn't play enough video games. <laughs> I know, I was trying to fit in. I was trying to be cool, but... You know, it always rears its ugly head, the fact that I'm just a poser when it comes to every single thing. Nerd. I'm a poser that, nerd. I'm not even a real nerd. Isn't that funny how much of the culture has changed? Like, if it were, like, 10 or 15 years ago, and you were to be, like, a big video gamer, like, everyone <laughs> would think you were, like, a some loser nerd. I and still now, think that. To not, now, to not know the video game terms, it's like you're... Ooh, I'm in, I'm living in my world, okay? This is, in my world, people that play video games uh, compulsively are still geeks, okay? Especially if they're sitting there smoking pot. Oh, no offense, guys. <laughs> I feel like there are at least 12 people that listen to us that do that. They probably listen to us while they're playing video games. <laughs> hey, focus. Turn it off. I'll definitely do that, and uh, yeah, it's, I think that if someone ends up i think if it basically ends up consuming all of your time that's when it becomes a problem yeah like uh if you're just going to be playing a video game from sun up to sunset and, but I, I don't get me wrong i definitely think that uh i can definitely understand the appeal and just wanting to switch your brain off and just go slash at some dragons Ooh, online yeah. or something like that so do you want to talk about your topic yeah, I guess we'll just, since that was what we were supposed to talk about, I will dive into the subject uh, that I had picked for this week. And earlier I was talking about all roads lead to Rome. And why I thought that was uh, funny is because the subject that I had chosen was the mutinies against Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great. Oh. Uh, so I will just preface this by starting out by saying I'm not an expert in the his, in history at all. I heard that in, experts don't exist. 
Well, there's certainly not one before you at this moment. (laughs) I can attest to that. But I will try to give a little bit of a background as to what took place in each event. Uh, The mutiny against Alexander the Great and then the mutiny against uh, Julius Caesar. But the main thing that I wanted to concentrate on was their responses and their reactions to the mutiny because I think they're very... Uh, interesting exercises in psychology. And I also just think it's hilarious <laughs> <laughs> the way that they each man chose to deal with it. Huh. So uh, we sh- it should start with Alexander the Great because he came first by several centuries. Okay. He uh, uh, was around, this is about 300 around 300 or so years before Christ. <laughs> and this was in Macedonia, which is the region uh, just north of modern-day Greece. And Alexander's father had, just to, without getting into all the circumstances as to how he came to the throne, which are very interesting and worth looking into, but uh, his father, King Philip, dies and Alexander the Great, who he would be later known as Alexander the Great, he ends up inheriting his father's kingdom. Lucky him. Yeah. And he ends up, basically he ends up consolidating his power and securing the borders around uh, his recently expanded empire. And he basically, what Alexander does is he sets off on a campaign of conquest Ah. Because he had made the agreement that there would be no taxes on the Macedonian citizens, which kind of put him in a pickle because (laughs) he needs to get revenue going. And so the only form of revenue uh, available was conquest. Oh, I thought that um, that was just something that rich kids did once they inherited all their money. They went out on a a conquest. Well, I mean, this basic... I mean, Alexander is a really interesting figure and I would encourage anyone to look more into his story and the history. And I, I ultimately like what would happen with Alexander is he was not really fit to rule. He was fit to conquer. Uh, Alexander ends up dying without leaving an heir and oh. all the huge ex- vast uh, expansion of territory that he ends up conquering it immediately splinters off into several different kingdoms. Oh. Uh, his legacy was really that of a military strategist and a conqueror. And I think this is just me extrapolating here, but I think Alexander was more interested in exploring the unknown and reaching like the limits of his potential and of human potential, Mm. which is what would drive him to campaign in the East and to really push you know, the limits of his army and how far people were able and willing to go, which is what would eventually lead to the mutiny against him. Was he the one that cut off people's heads? I don't know about, I'm sure he's cut off somebody's head at some point. There was someone I thought that just, there were heads on sticks all across the field and I know that there was someone in East Asia uh, or Eastern Europe known as Vlad the Impaler. Oh wait! And he was all about 
Well, he was all about stabbing people and impaling them, not just their heads, but I think their whole bodies. But huh. that was someone who would exist many, many centuries later. And uh, Maybe I, I, yeah, I don't know. And, yeah. Maybe I'm thinking of it, it was like a movie that didn't actually happen. Maybe. If anyone but knows, I mean, email us. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of decapitation from, you know, the 400 years BC to the modern day. So. Why? Just. What's the appeal? People, I guess that way you know the person is dead. Oh, uh, yeah. Like one of the famous things is bring me his head and. You know, it's as good a proof of any not to know, A, that the person is not coming back and you identify the person. Oh, yeah. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> because, you know, cameras weren't invented back then. Yeah, that's true. I I forgot that cameras weren't invented yet. <laughs> so, essentially, uh, what happens is Alexander sets off for the east and he conquers as much territory as humanly possible. Ah. He pushes his army to the limits and they just keep invading, conquering for years. I think, uh, I think it, he was ended up campaigning for like something like 13 or 15 years. Huh. And he ends up conquering all the way from, uh, Macedonia and Greece. And he ends up reaching, uh, what would, you know, what would be modern day India. How does one conquer? You siege a city, you, uh, well, you either get them to submit to you and accept your rule, or you force them to do it by besieging their city and killing everyone, I guess. So do you come in on a horse and then there are people behind you that are all militant with their weapons and whatnot? And then you say, Dear people of this village, and then everyone comes out of their houses, and uh, and then you say, surrender uh, ownership of this land, or I will light all your houses on fire, or something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'd, I'd say that's pretty fair. I think then it's up to the people who see the army to make a cost-benefit analysis. They'll say, okay, <laughs> they've got this many soldiers. Uh, do we even have an army, or is our army able to resist them? Do we want to resist them? And then I guess then the ball's in their court. Yeah. Or and I guess another way is a nonviolent way where he says, if you let me rule over this, then everyone gets weekly anal. <laughs> yeah. I'm not familiar with any example in the history of that, but that could be an option. <laughs> okay. See, I just, I don't know a whole lot about history. Well, that's what we're getting into a little bit today. And so, finally, in uh, the year 326 BC, uh, Alexander would reach what was then known as the Hephaestus River, which is the modern-day Bias River in India. I hope I'm pronouncing those right. Mm. But at that point, essentially, his troops refused to march or they refused to go on any further. They had been fighting for years. Uh, they were getting old. They were in this strange, uh, foreign, unknown land, not knowing what lied ahead. Mm. Uh, they just had enough, and they wouldn't go any further. Mm. And so the, oh, this is what I thought was really funny, is um, Alexander ends up not having a choice. He ends up having to concede and begin the long march home. 
but he was so bitter and he felt so abandoned by uh, his men and betrayed. He uh, explicitly made them take the most difficult and arduous marches back, Ugh. assuring that as many men would you know, die on the way as possible mm. uh, in a form of punishment against them. Rude. And so they begin the long march home, and then in the year 324 BC, they reach the city of Opus, which is which was in modern day Iraq. And from what I understand, at that point he had made an agreement. Okay, I'll send just the very elderly, the very sick home, and. At that point, the soldiers, they rebelled again. They did another mutiny. And they said, no, like, we all want to go home. We have to go home. Like, this is, it's over. And it's, this is where (laughs) Alexander made the speech at Opus. And it's a very long speech, but I'll just try and read from a little bit of it to give you an idea. Uh I shall begin my speech from my father, Philip, for he found you vagabonds and destitute of means. Most of you clad in hides, feeding a few sheep up the mountainsides for the protection of which you had to fight with small success against Illyrians, Trebellians, and the border Thracians. Instead of the hides, he gave you cloaks to wear, and from the mountains he led you down into the plains and made you capable of fighting the neighboring barbarians so that you were no longer compelled to preserve yourselves by trusting rather to the inaccessible strongholds than to your own valor. He made you colonists of cities which he adorned with useful laws and customs. Uh, This goes on for a long time. I like how the camera's Uh, like shaking because you're so into it uh he also added the greater part of thrace to macedonia and by seizing the most conveniently situated places on the sea coast he spread abundance over the land from commerce and made the working of the mines a secure employment do you think he really <laughs> said it this well spoken or was the writing later uh aggrandized well this was i don't actually know um that's a really good question well, if this is what he said, then his English is really good. Yeah. <laughs> now, this is obviously a translation, and oh, I that's... actually don't know. I know that, like, from ancient times, sometimes the evidence can be spotty, and but in other cases, there's really good documentation. Uh, I just can't, I can't, I can't answer that. It would be nice mm. if someone who is more well-read uh, in the classics could speak to that point, mm. but... So we kind of have to take this at face value. Okay. Uh, um, where does this continue? Yeah. And then he begins talking about himself. Having overpowered the satraps of Darius with my cavalry, I added to your empire the whole of Ionia, the whole of Aeolus, both uh, Phrygius and Lydia, and I took Miletus by siege. He's talking about all of these conquests that he makes. The riches of Egypt and Cyrene, which I acquired without fighting a battle. So there you have it. There are peaceful instances, uh, I guess. Uh-huh. Have come to you. And he goes on. Uh, basically, he continues to go on for this long diatribe saying how all these conquests are, were made for you. I didn't do any of this for myself. <laughs> I have scars all over my body. I kept watch o- the, during the night to make sure that you were safe. And it's just a, 
Well, it's a very powerful speech. And when you listen to it, even myself as a modern person, I feel bad and I feel like I owe Alexander something, but it's basically just a big long diatribe of shaming his men and making them feel bad about themselves. And he basically concludes the speech. I I guess I could read the conclusion, but essentially he says, so if that's how you feel and if you just let it be known that today you abandoned your king, so be gone. So he basically just ends up pouting and being really bitter towards his uh, his men, and who, in my mind, were rightly upset and wanted yeah. to just have it be over with. I mean, campaigning for 15 years and oh. then going to what was then the edge of the known world, I think they had every right to <laughs> want to be over. But uh, from what I understand, his men really did feel... Uh, guilty and ashamed about having abandoned i was hoping they'd all be like all right bye well i guess they did end up going home at that point so but they they, felt guilty they went home but they were like well i feel bad i feel bad about this (laughs) go on there's you know there's tons of jokes about this speech it's like the speech that you give to your friends when it's like Two in the morning yeah. and everybody wants to go home and you want to go out until last call. <laughs> you stand up on a chair and like start <laughs> preaching. I arranged this whole thing. I set up the Facebook group <laughs> and I drove us all out here and I put, I paid for the first rounds. And then it cuts to what they're actually hearing and you're like, Whoa, yeah, cause you're so <laughs> drunk. <laughs> like, so, what is he saying? We need to get him a cab. You know, I th- I just thought that was really funny how he basically he he ended up he was he's just a very bitter person like towards the end from what I understand uh, like I was saying he never left an heir mm. and he was like on his deathbed uh, he'd fallen ill he was on his deathbed and his generals uh, were like imploring him they're like please name an heir to your kingdom like who should be in charge and basically. I think what he basically said was the strongest (laughs) and it was like very enigmatic, but it was just like a way of saying like, I don't know, fight among yourselves and I don't care. Uh, It's sort of like when Ruth Bader Ginsburg left. Really? What happened? She didn't leave an heir. Like she didn't, she should have retired before uh, Trump came into office basically because she passed away while Trump was in office. So now our new senator or um, judge is this woman that a lot of people dem- uh, democratic wise don't like because she's pro-abortion. And you, like you said, in I think uh, two episodes ago when we were talking about contentious presidencies or no, we were talking about Kanye West. <laughs> Um, (laughs) they're there for life like when they get appointed right the judges Mm -hmm. yeah but I don't actually know what how that's going right now with her yeah I guess uh Ginsburg I I mean I'm not I can't claim to have been inside of her mind or her thought process but I guess her plan was to outlive the Trump presidency Mm -hmm. and uh but uh, yeah, she she's basically like a modern day Alexander. <laughs> no one is fit to take my place, and they don't deserve it. Unpopular opinion. <laughs> um. So yeah, that is 
the uh, the history of the mutiny against Alexander the Great, mm. uh, who would be, I mean, even to this day, he's known as a great general and a legendary uh, figure, but he was very venerated by uh, the empire that would come to uh, preeminence centuries later, which was the Roman Empire. Uh, lots of people uh, would look up to Alexander and his conquests, and they would use him as a source of inspiration. And this next person who I'm going to talk about, Julius Caesar, maybe you've heard of him, was, oh, yeah. was uh, constantly feeling like he lived in the shadow of Alexander. Like he, ah. he would look at himself and what he had done. Uh, at, at a certain age, and he'd say, "Well, by the time Alexander was my age, he had already conquered like the whole world, and I'm just, oh. I'm no, I'm never going to conquer as much as he is." I think of that too when I see like female pop stars. Yeah, but this, uh, yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm the same age as Lady Gaga, and uh, I just <laughs> yeah. feel awful about myself every time I think about how much she's done. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yes, Julius Caesar would be around, would exist. Like he would, the high, the height of his time was about 50 years before Christ. And, uh, this is where I'm really hazy with all the history that was going on. But to summarize what was happening was, uh, Julius Caesar had been a prestigious general. He had conquered a lot of territory in the name of the Roman Republic and he, was uh, at but at some point there was a power struggle in Rome about who would basically be controlling like the political structure and it would lead to uh, a civil war which would lead to uh, Julius Caesar basically becoming the first emperor of Rome and that would bring an end to the Roman Republic mm. so like Basically, Rome would stop from being kind of like a republic or a quasi-democratic system because, I mean, there are slaves oh. everywhere. How much of a democracy can you be when there's slaves? <laughs> but that, like what little form of democracy there would be would be brought to an end in form of uh, outright imperialist uh, like monarchy. Okay, and that's similar to, like, a dictatorship? Yeah, basically it would become, like, a, a dictatorship. Like, the Senate would later name, uh, I like this title that they give to Julius Caesar, they would name him Perpetual Dictator. <laughs> um, Why? I, Who determined, oh, God. Yeah. He he was the better fighter. He had more men loyal to him. He oh. it was done by force and conquest. Times were different Times back were, then. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that, that stuff I'm really hazy about. Um, the, the point, uh, the, the, again, the point of this conversation is once the civil war was going on, uh, also, uh, similar to what had happened with Alexander, Caesar's legions ended up mutinying against him. Hmm. And it was something similar. These were his, uh, like most trusted, most loyal veteran legions that had been serving under him for the better part of a decade. And what, what basically was going on is they, Caesar had made some certain commitments to these people saying like, after so many years of service, then you'll be able to retire. You'll be able to have a pension. You'll be able to have land. 
And these promises had basically not been fulfilled for years at this point. And the legionnaires, even though they were fanatically loyal to Julius Caesar, they had had enough. And in the year... Do you know how old he was at this point? I don't, actually. That's worth... Uh, that's a good question. He's, I think he's probably, like, in his, like, late 30s or mid-40s, something like that. I what? Really, really? I really don't know. I just don't know. I wish I had oh, an answer People lived longer than I thought they did. I mean, wealthy people did. Ah, uh, why? They just, like, didn't live in uh, bad conditions, like, freezing cold and yeah better quality of life dirty. better diet i would say mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and now we have the enough wealth as individuals to have a better way of life and better diet but we still choose to eat pop tarts and pizza <laughs> yeah kind of how ironic how that happened but we <laughs> still have a far better quality of life than any like even the wealthiest king like in the ancient times or in the middle ages ever had mm, that's optimistic Take that into consideration, y'all. Yeah, a lot of people... Life is good. (laughs) Hold on, I need to find... Okay, this was in 47 BC. Okay. So, at this point, the Civil War was going on, and uh, Julius Caesar ended up being stuck in Alexandria in Egypt. And the city of Alexandria was named after Alexander the Great, ironically. Mm. Because he had conquered that and they, he built a city and it was named after him. They feminized it. And uh, Julius Caesar had been laid under siege in that city for several months. And at this point, his veteran legions back in Italy uh, began the mutiny against against him, saying, "We're basically they're saying we're fed up with this. We want our pensions. We want to be dis- dismissed. We want to... Like, we're done. Like, we don't want to fight this anymore. This is after three years? This is after, like, 15 years of fighting under Caesar. Oh, okay. Because I thought you started at 50 BC, and now we're at 47 BC. No, I'm just giving, like, a ballpark area oh, okay. when I say 50 BC. Like, like that's the general time when this is happening. But, like... Gotcha. Um, See, I am listening. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, 47 <laughs> BC... Uh, the, the, the people working under Caesar, his subordinates, they're trying their best to quell the mutiny. Like they're, they're not hearing any of it. And they're telling Caesar like, Hey, this is really getting out of hand. You got to do something. And Caesar's like, well, I'm stuck here. I can't do anything, but he really needs these legions under him. If he's going to have a chance at winning the civil war, because just as, as he has legions fighting under him, so do the other factions and his political enemies. Like they have armies of their own, so he needs he needs these armies in order to to fight. Mm. But he finally he finally ends up leaving Alexandria because he manages to put uh, Cleopatra on the throne there, and mm. he uh, returns to Italy. And then the time has come for him to address his soldiers. And they are, you know, in a fury. They're, they're, he, he gets up at a podium uh, at their camp and they're speaking to him. They're saying, we're, we're fed up with this. We're tired. We want our pensions and we want to, you know, be dismissed. And Caesar basically plays the ultimate, like, bluff or act of reverse psychology 
possibly in history, because despite the fact of desperately needing these legions, he just looks at them. He treats the whole thing very nonchalantly. He's very calm as if it's just like a basic casual problem. And he says, okay, you're dismissed. (laughs) And his soldiers are like, wait, what? Like, just like that? And is this where he chops off all their heads? No, no. And he, (laughs) he, Okay, that's nobody. He takes a, a jab at them and he addresses them as citizens. Oh, and like in the at the oh. time, this would be a real slap in the face because they're soldiers; they're not just normal uh. citizens. But he says, "Yep, you're dismissed, citizens. Don't worry, you're going to get your pay, citizens, and oh. you are no longer. I'm in, no longer in need of your services, citizens." <laughs> and the effect that this ends up having is that this the soldiers the legionnaires are overwhelmed with guilt because they thought it would go over differently they thought that caesar would basically be imploring them to keep fighting and they thought that they would be able to get like more concessions Mm -hmm. from this and and they say essentially they end up saying no wait we were just (laughs) kidding We, we we don't want to be dismissed we we want to yeah. go with you to fight in North Africa because at the time there was an army, uh, another army to go after and fight in North Africa, and Caesar says no no I I I, I don't I don't want you I I'm just I'm not mad I'm just disappointed because <laughs> I just thought you all would have had more faith in me to fill out my promises and I just I just don't think we can go on like this and they were yeah. rushing the podium they were just like no please please no. please let us fight please we'll decimate us just like decimation was when one in every 10 soldier was killed oh. for as a form no. of punishment they're like kill us and he's like no no like you're you're dismissed and it's, uh, it's, it's all right. I don't need you. And it's just for the best. Like, I can see you guys don't care anymore. And they're just, no, no, please, please, <laughs> please. And so after like a lot of begging and, and like, uh, this would go on and, and Caesar finally in the, ah, okay. I guess you can come back and fight for me. <laughs> and it was just such a brilliant move because yeah. he ends up getting these like, who once again i think they had real grievances and i think they were had every right to mutiny but he ends up tricking them into getting back in the saddle and metaphorically yeah. and literally i guess to fighting for him <laughs> and i i i would assume i don't know how it ended up working out like obviously a lot of them would end up dying fighting under him and um he actually he didn't punish them but he did uh he did take note of who are the leaders of the mutiny and he made it a point to put them in the most dangerous positions oh, when they were fighting no. to let the problem kind of take care of itself. But <sighs> I would assume that after he would end up taking power, I would, ass- I can only assume that they finally did end up getting like handsomely rewarded for their services, but let's that, hope so. I'm not really sure about that. Yeah. That's a powerful thing that guilt. <laughs> yes. So, I guess to summarize, I think it was just very interesting to see how these two great men reacted to the these mutinies. Yeah. And with uh, Alexander, it was an act of shaming, whereas under yeah. Julius Caesar, it was reverse psychology. And That's I guess ultimately, 
the strategy that worked end up working better was Julius Caesar's. So even though he spent most mm. of his time living in Alexander's shadow, he ended up handling the the crisis in a yeah. in a better way than his predecessor. They're like cult leaders. Yeah, they definitely had a cult of personality. Like the soldiers mm-hmm. at the time, they weren't loyal to like Rome or to the Macedonian. They were really loyal to their ruler, their king, mm. because he was the one who looked after them and, and saw that they were well taken care of. And it's odd, like people that grow up in these um, royal lines or, you know, people that end up being in charge of things. I just wonder what they were like personality wise. Like were they, did they have narcissistic personality disorder? Because there is a little lack of that empathy. You know, you're going around and just mutilating villages of people just to control things, just to have power. And then there are all these people following you and you manipulate them and you guilt them. And, uh, it just seems like this is ancient narcissistic personality disorder. Oh, I'm sure like you have, people have to let that stuff go to their head. Like, um, Mm -hmm. in the case of Alexander, he, uh, his mother, like when he came to the throne, like his mother took him aside and said, listen, your dad, Philip, he wasn't really your dad. It's actually Zeus is your father. And Alexander was like a really deeply religious person at the time. So he believed it. And so imagine hearing that and you're the king and you hear that you're the son of Zeus and you're like, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm great. I'm wow. And that's what apparently would lead to him taking a lot of like huge risks on the battlefield. Like he would personally like lead the charges in some of these battles and he would end up getting like really injured and like knocked unconscious and stuff because I think he must have thought like at some level that he was a god and he couldn't be hurt. Oh my gosh. Did he keep it secret or did he tell people? Did people believe it? Uh, That's a good question. I don't, I don't know. I don't. I'm yeah. I'm assuming no, because well I my dad is also Zeus. He's all of our fathers. Like he disguises <laughs> himself as a bull and then he goes down and sees our moms and says, "Hey, so." Yeah, that's it. Explains a lot about our personalities when you find out that we're actually related to a god. Yeah, like Julius Caesar, he would end up being assassinated by his political enemies, but like he was so beloved by so many people, like at. At his funeral, he was, like, officially declared a god. Wow. Beloved. Man. Yeah, to be loved. How would that feel? There's a lot of, uh, no, that at the time, I, I think even our modern-day leaders have to have these narcissistic and oh, megalomaniac yeah. personalities. But, I mean, it's a lot less ostentatious than it was. Like, King Philip, Alexander's father, like, after he had done all of his conquests he arranged like a a parade and in the parade they had all of the major like greek gods statues of all the major greek gods were paraded like down in a row and then the last statue was a statue of him of king it's like what are you trying to say here oh my gosh yeah there's a distinct Ooh, did you hear my dog give a shake hi buddy shake 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 um there, there's a distinct difference between someone who's famous who is an artist and someone who's like 
famous and is a politician because the artists, a lot of the time, you know, they end up with all these uh, like addictions and they feel very lonely, even though they're surrounded by people that love them. And then there's politicians that are have all these people following them in, in a similar kind of way where they're beloved in a way and, and they don't seem to have the same problems, I think in part they don't feel lonely because they don't necessarily need the same type of connection that someone that became famous because they were an artist would need you know because you're more in touch with your emotions as an artist and as a politician in some cases you're more just in it for the power rather than for the to hear people sing your lyrics or yeah and it is funny how I, I guess that we what we see where the real power lies is with politics. And what I mean by that is the dynamic we'll see is is a very famous artist or musician will come and perform for the politician. Oh, yeah. Like uh, uh, th- this is just one example, but I think it was Rihanna or Beyonce. Someone someone really like a, a famous artist. They came to. Uh, Angola, geez. Uh, Angola is like a very oil rich country in southern Africa. And, uh-huh. uh, like all, like it's basically a really corrupt, um, dictatorship. It's like all, all the oil revenue, it's like stolen by this family that, uh, and there's huge wealth inequality, but like they're able to have these famous American pop stars come down and give like private concerts because they're so wealthy and so powerful. <laughs> and, um, well, I mean, just as a that's side hard. note, I, th- I feel like that's a little disappointing on the part of the artists or the musicians yeah. that they will kind of, uh, validate these illegitimate, like what, what well, I would consider illegitimate regimes by going yeah, down quit and quit doing that guys, Cut our listeners that are pop stars, but, <laughs> Cut it out. <laughs> but I guess essentially, like, politics is power for good and hmm. for worse. Mm-hmm. Like, we, we so, don't know. Yeah. We, we still remember Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar because they were powerful, well, generals, but also politicians. Yeah. So what else? I don't know. That's pretty much all I had to share uh, today. I think... I guess if there had to be a lesson maybe that could lead to self-improvement is um, uh. <laughs> it, it's really important to have uh, composure and being calm when you're under a really stressful situation. I don't think most of us will be facing a mutiny in our lives, mm. but mm-hmm, I, there definitely mm-hmm. will be times when we're tested and when we're challenged and mm-hmm. had the ability of to have a good poker face or to remain calm under pressure Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that could be something that we could all learn from, particularly Julius Caesar. Or maybe if we're going to go down, go down with dignity or by complaining a whole lot like Alexander the Great. Like <laughs> a huge long speech about why you're the best and why they're all traitorous rats. <laughs> what I take from it is uh, to understand psychology so that you don't get manipulated Yes, that's probably a better lesson is learn to know <laughs> when people are manipulating you. Because like I yeah. said, I, I I would be on the side of the soldiers that were mutinying and they, well, in the case of Julius Caesar, they allowed themselves to be manipulated. So, 
Well, we were talking about when we talked about the 40 hour work week, how there comes to be sometimes a culture where people allow themselves to be treated poorly. So then the people that start to stand out um, are the bad guy in a way. So you kind of have to get everyone on your side. So in order to be able to rise up against the, the ruler, because I can imagine being in that group of people with Julius Caesar, or Alexander the Great, and saying like, no, guys, he's totally guilting us right now. Like, don't let him do this. And they're like, no, no, I think it's good. I think it's good. So if everyone around you is like, it's fine, knowing what's going on, knowing that you're being manipulated isn't going to do you a whole lot of good. Yeah. So you have to re-manipulate everyone. You have to be a better manipulator. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, it's funny how, <laughs> how it's funny how the truth can be really perverted in that way. It's like you can call something out and be uh, justified, maybe at work and complaining about something that's not wrong, and all they have to do is, say, "All right, you big whining crybaby, <laughs> we're gonna all stop doing what we're doing because so and so is a big baby." Yeah, they <laughs> are a baby. No, but they were making us work with the lights out. Or they were, <laughs> they're making us work 80 hours a week. Oh, jeez. Why are you such, such a, a crybaby? I don't rat. mind it. Such, no one else here seems to care. You rat. You dirty fink. <laughs> Going to ocean labor board. <laughs> So, yeah, be a better manipulator than the people that are manipulating you, I guess. <laughs> yeah. It's, a, it's an important yeah. lesson in crowd psychology. <laughs> so, should I read uh, this week's quote? Please. I love your quotes. Okay, this is a quote from none other than Julius Caesar himself. And I just like it because it's so cynical. Uh, it says, if you must break the law, do it to seize power. In all other cases, observe it. Oh, I like that. That's good advice. Don't break the law unless you're sure that you're going to be getting the upper hand. That's brilliant. Actually, that's interesting that that's the quote you picked because that's literally what we were just talking about. Yeah, that's funny. Be the better manipulator. So uh, right. did you have anything else to add or were we just going to leave it uh, at that? Yeah, I think that's great. Thanks for learning me some stuff about all that. Um, to our listeners, go to our website, practicemakespodcast.com and send us an email or a voicemail or go to our Instagram and send us an emoji wave. Yeah. Or... Please let us know how you're doing and what you're thinking. And thank you for listening. And I guess we'll see you all on the next one. Bye. Bye.